the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, July 20th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be examining the reasons behind RT's 2.8 million euro loss for last year. What might this mean for our licence fee? Laura Slattery joins me in the studio later to discuss that and other issues facing our national broadcaster. And later in the show, we'll be looking at the government's new four-year deal with the pharma industry on the supply of medicines. Will it really produce savings of 750 million euro a year for the state? We'll hear from the industry later. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and it's also available from our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But we'll start with the state of RTE's finances. Our national broadcaster published its annual report on Wednesday and it showed a reduced operating profit and a loss for the year of 2.8 million euro. Laura Slattery covered the story for the Irish Times and joins me in the studio. Laura, you might just take us through the headline figures. So the deficit was 2.8 million and this follows two years in which it made very modest surpluses. You could say it was a managed break-even position and that in turn had followed four years of quite deep uh, quite deep deficits culminating in about 60 million plus of a deficit in 2012. This was post the crash. Yeah, which in, um, that last deficit, uh, that fourth uh, deficit was partly high because they uh, had a redundancy scheme and there was costs associated yeah. with that. So well, let's a, focus on last year. Was, what were yeah, the headline figures? Yeah, I mean, so there was a feeling. Year. There was a feeling that a line had been drawn under, under that particular, um, I suppose, adjustment that they had to make after their commercial revenues uh, fell. You know, up mm. to forty percent. They're still down thirty-five percent uh, on two thousand and eight. And the figures uh, that were published yesterday, which are for 2015, um, you know, showed, you know, the, the, the ongoing pattern of now of, of commercial revenues are actually rising. So, yeah, up 4%. Yeah, so they're 4%. Mm. Uh, and, you know, even television, which is obviously the big the biggest part of their um, business, even they rose, you know, they managed to rise despite right. And total uh, revenue was up 2% to uh, 334 yeah. So million. the total revenue is lower than the growth in commercial revenue because the licence fee revenue basically only went up 300,000. This is to uh, uh, just shy of 179 million. And that's the sort of 84% mm. share of the licence fee revenues that RTE receives. And it said it was disappointed, you know, even though it would, you know didn't fall again. Mm. I imagine there would be a lot of businesses now would love a a subsidy of 179 million euro a year. Um, there are a lot of businesses who would absolutely, you know, adore, adore a fraction of that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, TB3, um, it's not their official position to call for a license fee uh, funds, you know, as, as it is with the radio sector, yeah. does want license fee funds. But obviously they do feel, and they correctly uh, would sure. say, that RTE does have... A, a bit of a wedge yeah. there. Uh, just to be clear, that 179 million or, or thereabouts, um, that's the direct license fee payment to RTE because some of it is obviously, um, some of the license fee goes towards the uh, Broadcasting Authority Sound and Vision Fund, which goes to the independent sector to produce programming, much of which appears on RTE then. Yeah, some, a good good chunk of it would appear on RTE and uh, the rest of it w- appears on uh, TV3, even BBC. TG Carter, uh, uh, of course, who, which also gets money from the licence fee and um, the radio stations. Yeah. Um, but so revenue's up uh, and yet they still made a loss. Why? 
Well, I mean, this is this is very interesting now. I mean, they what they drew attention to was foreign currency movements, which made the cost of uh, of their acquired programming a little bit higher than they had anticipated. But it's pretty. Did they break out the clear. cost of foreign programming? Um, yeah, I mean, the the actual total amount they spend on acquired programs, it, you know, isn't that much higher higher than it, it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much level. So it's not like RTE has suddenly been buying more acquired programming. Programming, and in fact, in some ways, it's sort of it's. Some of its costs for 2015 should have been lower because it wasn't a World Cup year or a, Euro- or a European Championship year. Um, it's 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 really clear once you, you uh, look at the figures that the reason um, they had more uh, higher operating costs in 2015 was because um, staff numbers increased. So the staff numbers now stand at um, just shy of 2,000. Yeah, 1,978. So I think you know before the crash they had about two thousand three hundred and they 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 went right back down to sixteen seventeen hundred, um, but they've crept up again the last two years and um, yeah there's one thousand nine hundred seventy seven and that includes part timers yeah there's some part timers so in there as almost three hundred yeah. um, but that's two year two consecutive years now that they have gone up in staff and it seems to be across the board television radio news and current affairs they've taken on people in different areas. Uh, and it does slightly, you know, because they obviously are turning around to the government and saying, well, we want reform of the license fee. We want to be more secure in future where about where our public funding comes from. And I suppose it, it does kind of, there's maybe a slight contradiction there because, um, you know, OK, it has a deficit. And it's saying that that points to problems with the, the mm. license fee. And the so license on, the, fee on the one hand, they're, they're saying that they're keeping their operating costs under control. And yet on the other hand, um, their staff numbers, etc., are going up. So it makes you question where, where this whole thing is going. Well, I mean, there's no doubt they did make a massive adjustment, oh, as I said, post-recession. As we but all did. As, 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 we, as many people did. Um, but the, I, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, the last couple of years, it seems to be a slightly more relaxed uh, approach to costs. Uh, personnel costs have gone up 11 million. Um, there was a pay restoration for staff. Mm. And um, I think, I think like, when, when they are saying that, 22 million, uh, they're getting 22 million less in the license fee funding now than they were in 2008. And yet at the same time, the costs are starting to go back up. It, it's, it's, it's slightly a, a sort of a mixed message there, I think. OK, let's talk about the license fee. You mentioned that they're calling for uh, some greater certainty in terms of their public funding. One of, the, one of the figures that jumps out at you is the rate of evasion of the license fee, something like 14 percent, quite high, I think much higher than our our colleagues, our neighbours in the UK, and it's costing uh, RTE, they, they reckon, I think it's costing about £25 million a year. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no doubt um, that... What's, what's going on here? That, I mean, there's no doubt that it's a pretty appalling situation that we have a, uh, that, you know, that, that we have a licence fee that we're not, you know, uh, that we're not upholding equally throughout the country. All the people who are liable to pay pay for it aren't, aren't, aren't paying it. So the in this report, and I think it's uh, Department of Communications figures, it was stated as a 14% evasion rate and about 25 million. But I've seen 30 million or higher mentioned and the Minister for... Uh, uh, communications. The the new minister Dennis Nocton has, has suggested it could be up to forty million being lost to evasion. Um, that's what he's said in the doll. Yeah, just so, while you were I speaking mean, there, to, I did a quick a, calculation here on my iPhone. That's uh, about one hundred and fifty six thousand households or businesses that aren't paying their license fee effectively. Yeah, I mean just to put it and in some context, of the falls falls uh, at the door of on post, doesn't it? Because on post is yeah. responsible for collecting the license yeah, fee. Yeah, absolutely. And just to put it, just to put it in context. Uh, uh, TV three recently picked up UTV. 
Ireland channel for 10 million. So you could say, you know, the rent loss to evasion is, is the equivalent of three, three plus UTV Ireland channels that they're not missing out mm. on. And um, RTE has been very unhappy with Unpust. Uh, on post's role in, in the collection of the licence fee um, and they believe a better job uh, could be done and should be done and, uh, on, and Do we know where on post stands on this? I mean, well, have they I given think, any explanation think, as to why um, I think, so many people are I, I think it just fee? comes down to resor- resources on, on their part I think that's their argument and but we will hear more from them, I believe, in the next uh, yeah. few weeks. The the minister has asked for them to come up with a plan, or they are coming up with a plan to show how they may may uh, become more efficient collectors of the license fee. It's a very sensitive issue because you don't really want the courts, you know, the the, the, the government doesn't want the courts clogged up with uh, an, a, a sudden spike. And in, it doesn't in want cases. to have to put people in prison for not paying fines. No, yeah, I mean, and, and actually, that has caused a political sensitivity in in Britain, where you know part of the reason you know they have the evasion rate is you know less than you know is much smaller is part of the reason is because they they have in the past you know been very uh, very strict on prosecutions and you know put the fear of life into people if they don't get their license fee now whether the license fee i suppose because there was talk at one point of a broadcasting charge uh, being put in place and we know that there's a whole netflix generation a lot of people don't have tvs and so on so if we're going to have public broadcasting into the future how are we going to charge for it yeah, I mean, the broadcasting charge is one of those things that's very logical on paper, but it, it hit a political uh, brick wall in the wake of, of the Irish Irish water debacle. Uh, there was no way that the government was going to bring in another charge, or even if it was a replacement charge that wasn't actually going to cost people any more than the 160 quid they currently pay in the television licence fee. And the, the reason there was logic underpinning it is uh, that it, it was going to apply to uh, all households, you know, regardless of whether or not they actually owned a television set. And um, people are consuming um, or to ease content without having a television set. They're, they're consuming the news service online. They're consuming programs on the RT player uh, and so on. And there was the sort of attempt to sort of, to sort of capture that um, that uh, contingent. RTE actually mentioned in their annual report uh, this, that for the first time I've seen them mention the num- rising number of households without a television set. Mm. And do we know how many households, strictly speaking, don't have a TV set? Do we have any Well, I indication? mean, according to the um, TAM Ireland Nielsen Establishment Survey, the most recent one that I've seen, um, 93% of the households in the country do have okay. a TV set. And that's seems so to be fa- that's been fairly stable. Mm. I think it was 94% recently. Um, and but also, you know, the total number of TV homes is 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 about one point five um, six nine uh, million. So sorry, <laughs> one thousand one million five hundred sixty nine thousand um, households. Ha- households have televisions, and that's uh, like that is marginally down on a year earlier. So it's it's almost one percent down. So yeah. so uh, there were obviously there have been um, there are uh, you know new household formations as what he said. So so there, maybe there is a, a little bit of a, a softness there and a change in the market. And okay. as you say, more people you know just sufficing with Netflix. Now one of the reasons why they want certainty under public funding is because they're going to have to invest in new digital technologies and so forth. And one of the ways they're going to uh, pay for this, uh, it would seem, is, is by selling off some of the site at uh, Montrose. Prime land, it must be said, in uh, in Donnybrook uh, for residential development or, or whatever. Yeah. And they've indicated that they're going to sell off a parcel of that. Yeah, I mean, this, this plan's been underway for some time. I think they have about 30 acres in total. And there's, there's possibly, they might look at selling 10 acres, which should net them at least 
50 million, I thought, but it's it's earmarked for a sort of longer term capital uh, investment in infrastructure, including the transmission um, network. Uh, the minister did highlight um, in it, his statement um, this week that RTE was going to need to invest more in digital. So I'm assuming that is partly what he meant. But um, it's being Dennis Nocton. Dennis Nocton, yeah. So, I mean, like if, if we believe in having public service media, then RTE has to be allowed to make that migration. You know, if we want to keep it, then RTE mm. has to exist in this digital world. So there are obviously are upfront costs with that. Yeah. And, um, you know, so as, as a state, uh, it, you know, they have to decide whether or not they want to support that or not. Yeah, just looking at the analysis we carried in today's paper of of the license fee and where it goes. It's a license fee, of course, stands at one hundred and sixty euro annually. Uh, three three euro seventy of that goes to online services. I presume it's their website and and the RT player and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, five point two percent spent on radio and the Gael five and a half percent goes on the RT orchestras, which I thought was interesting, and seven point six percent on uh, TG Carr. So it is spread around, and interesting as well to see that just under four euros out of our license fee goes on uh, 2FM which used not get a subsidy back in the day back in its glory days Yeah um, I mean 2FM was going through a a pretty disastrous phase there where it was losing a lot of money and it looks like they might be back in a position this year where they contribute uh, commercially to or to otherwise what's the point of 2FM I feel you know it's, it's exactly it, it, I mean it's a, effectively a quasi commercial station isn't it Yeah I mean, I mean it is and we have plenty of those especially in Dublin it is. I mean, it probably does do some things on kind of music discovery, sort of targeting a, a particular youth market that maybe gets slightly lost between the other um, the other radio stations. But yeah, I think it's either there as a cash cow for RTE and whether you agree with that or not, or it, it doesn't really sort of, uh, or, or it gets, as they, to use the, the sort of the BBC uh, Tory language, it either becomes the commercial cash cow or it becomes more distinctive, as they say, which is to say, which what they mean is get off the lawn of the commercial radio operator. So it's got it's kind of it has two choices, and I think at the moment they're probably trying to straddle both, and perhaps that will work. Um, but it's it, but it but it's probably it's it's not the embarrassment it was three or four years ago. Anyway, I'll say that about two FM and some of the other things you mentioned there: orchestras, radio in the Guelta, um and other other services. A lot of these things are they're not commercial things, and they're things that wouldn't really exist. Um, without the without the, either license fee money or some sort of state support, so mm-hmm. you know, although I say earlier, sort of raising an eyebrow at at, at staffing levels and so on, RTE does you know say that it needs to do all this. This is in its remit. So um, so the the argument about it should maybe do some uh, uh, cloth cutting is is always countered by the uh, argument that if it doesn't do these things that are judged to be of worth to society, then no one else will and we'll lose them. And we'll just end up in this kind of globalised culture with very little to protect Irish culture. Yes, indeed. But um, I notice RT support for TG Carr comes in at €5.36 amid every um, licence fee. And the TG Carr deduction is uh, €6.88. uh, and that's fine if you agree with, uh, you know, TG Carr um, uh, as a public service entity. That's fine. But uh, nonetheless, RTE is providing support to a television station that then goes and poaches its uh, rugby rights, uh, for example, to the Pro 12 and presumably pushed up the cost of those uh, rights. Yeah, I'm sure RTE would prefer if, if the TG Carr 
part of their support was was totally separate. You know, if it was totally uh, treated as separate to the, what it gets in the license fee. Um, you know, yeah, there's an, there is an interesting uh, argument for more cooperation between RTE and TG Cahir in future. Mm. And that might be one for the next uh, Director General of TG Cahir. And you lead me neatly uh, on to the Dee moment. Forbes, yes, who's just uh, come in as Director General of RTE. Any indications? Is there going to be a step change in the direction of uh, RTE uh, as a result of her appointment? Um, I can only imagine that there is going to be significant change. We don't know yet because uh, she just started last week. Just fill uh, us in on her background. Um, well, she was um, the president managing director of Discovery Networks Northern Europe. So it's a pretty big um, area region within the wider Discovery Communications uh, companies. That's the Maryland company, the biggest shareholder in it is the uh, billionaire John B- John Malone, who also has uh, ties to, of course, um, TV3's ultimate owner, Liberty Global. He's the largest shareholder there as well. So she comes from this kind of corporate, uh, pan-European, uh, Lon- London-based media world, very commercial. Uh, she would have sat on the uh, Commercial Broadcasters Association body in the UK. And she's sort of so she's sort of switched now to public service broadcasting. She's hugely experienced, um, and um, sure she'll have um, mm. ideas for how to um, to make a, a RTE um, a fit for fit for the commercial future. I mean, actually, I think her, she used the expression "future proofing RTE" in her initial address to staff. So we don't know what the plans are, but there's obviously a lot of uh, ongoing lobbying that has to be done with the government and um, I think it'll be very interesting to see what her plans are. Yeah, And finally Laura, do we have any indication of RTE's uh, likely financial outturn for uh, 2016? Did it give any indication whether they're going to make a profit or loss this year? Um, they haven't said so in so many words, but I, I think at the moment, unless something they can sort of you know, radically cut back on something between now and the end of the year, um, I think the expectation is that there, there will be another deficit for 2016 and that it'll be bigger than 2.8 million. And the reason is um, they've just had so many costs this year. There was the general election, um, the 1916 centenary um, commemorations, which of course were widely praised, but they did cost a lot of money. And sport. Um, sport. It's a big, big sporting year. So those are the, the main ones. And, um, you know, part of, you know, that's why they sold off some of the matches to, to TV3 so they could recoup some money. It's in the European but they're, but, yeah. but they're on, they're on, a, they're on track to make, to make a deficit, as I understand it. And although it was, there was a reference in the annual report to the uh, commercial advertising outlook being encouraging for 2016, um, I have a feeling that was written before the uh, what we might call the Brexit wobble, um, you know, or, or to e, and, and a lot of media companies in Ireland would be affected by that. A lot of these the biggest advertisers are ones that that plan their Irish campaigns in conjunction with the UK. So, you know, we could see some sort of nervousness about ad spending tied in both before and after the referendum, and uh, so you wouldn't be totally counting on there being a commercial bonanza um, to to pay for for these costs. Okay, Laura Slattery, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll take a short break now and return with an analysis of the government's latest deal with the pharmaceutical industry on the supply of medicines. 
At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back. Uh, the government has signed a four-year deal with the pharmaceutical industry on the supply of medicines. It's slated to produce savings of €750 million Euro over four years for the state. It looks good on paper, although some industry groups say it's a bad deal and will block access to some similar medicines. To help tease out these issues, I'm joined in studio by Dominic Coyle, Deputy Business Editor of the Irish Times, and by phone by Sandra Gannon, who's President of the Healthcare Enterprise Alliance, which represents generics and biosimilar uh, companies in the sector. We had hoped to get Oliver O'Connor, the uh, Chief Executive of the IPHA group that represents the major pharmaceutical players in Ireland, uh, to join us by phone, but unfortunately he pulled out uh, late on. So anyway, uh, Dominic Coyle, uh, you might just set the scene for us, if you like. Uh, how much does the HSE pay for drugs each year and where does the money go? Well, this deal is involving drugs that uh, currently cost the state $1.7 billion. Um, it operates under several different pre- premises, mostly the community uh, drug, drug schemes and also the hospital drugs. Um, now, that's not obviously all the pharmaceuticals in the state, but that's the, this basic deal is to deal with the state bill for drugs. So that's, that's the main interest for, for, for the drug pricing scheme. And these are drugs that are handed out in hospitals to patients and to people on medical cards, I presume. Exactly. Right, OK. So tell us uh, what's new about this deal and how will it yield the saving, if you like, to the state? Well, maybe we might start with the saving. The saving is $750 million. That's according to the government. The big pharma group, uh, the IPHA, who represent the, the drug companies, the big drug companies, say it'll be $785 million. But when they say saving, they mean this is money that'll be saved, which will actually then be used to pay for newer drugs or the fact that we need more drugs because the population is aging or whatever. It's just a saving on what we would have paid if, if we just kept going the way we were. That aside, what's new is uh, it is a four-year deal, but unlike the last deal when the price was set for the entire four years at the outset of the deal, this time around there'll be an assessment every year to see how the prices generally are going in Europe and there'll be a provision made that the price can be scaled downwards depending on the average price elsewhere in Europe. It can't be scaled upwards. It can only go downwards. It's a one-way-only system. Um, the, that, how that is assessed is on the basis of a basket, uh, the, the price of uh, the drug in a basket of other countries around Europe. What they've also done is introduce certain uh, lower-cost countries into that basket, for instance, mm. Greece, Portugal, and, and Italy, uh, which they th- hope will, reduce the, will have the impact of reducing prices or putting downward pressure on prices over the term of the agreement. Right, okay. Um, are there negatives to this deal, um, potentially? And were generic drug makers involved in these discussions, or just the big pharma players? Uh, th- this is one of the, the great the great problems with, with these agreements. Uh, this agreement is between government, the HSC, and Big Pharma, the Irish Pharmaceutical Healthcare Association. Uh, the uh, organisation which Sandra represents, which is the Healthcare Enterprise Alliance, who, who deal with uh, biosimilars, and also the generics companies such as Teva, which he runs in Ireland, were not part of the discussions. 
Uh, and these are important because the, there's a big pressure on government to start introducing more generic drugs. Ireland is a, more, prescribes more branded drugs than rival countries. And there's a big pressure in terms of reducing the bill to, to have more generics prescribed and more biosimilars. The, the difference being a generic drug is a, a like a carbon copy, a clone of a traditional drug. A biosimilar is a, a drug that acts in the same way as a biologic. A biologic is a, a, living, a living cell uh, derived drug. So you can't actually have a clone per se. So biosimilars are drugs that are deemed to act in the same way and therefore have the same effect. Right. Uh, Sandra, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but your group has said the agreement blocks competition, prevents new better value drugs from entering the market. Um, and I suppose people will be wondering why generic drug makers weren't at the table in this negotiation. Um, well, OK, let's be clear about, you know, a couple of things. First of all, we welcome uh, any mechanism that delivers savings, and some of the mechanisms in this agreement, you know, surely will deliver savings. However, from our perspective as, as HEA, we would say at least half of the savings will only be delivered if competition enters the market. And that's, you know, what, what Dominic alluded to there. It's the biopharmaceutical space. It's the fastest-growing space in terms of medicine costs in Ireland. And a number of those big biopharmaceuticals are going to lose exclusivity in the coming years. Um, and, and we see the bulk of the savings. It hasn't been broken down, but we see the bulk of the savings that the government are claiming and EFA are claiming as coming in that space. However, the savings are only going to be made if biosimilars enter the market. And currently, HEA and TEVA are the leading suppliers of biosimilars to the market. And we would see the... Um, the price entry point that biosimilars will now need to take in the market as being so low with a market of, of this size and the costs to enter the, the biologic or biopharmaceutical market that but biosimilars actually will now see this market as unviable. If biosimilars don't enter the market, then 300 million of the proposed savings will not be delivered. So we can't see why the government, and we've put a number of measures to them that are being used across Europe, which encourage biosimilar entry into the market and therefore deliver meaningful savings. What we can't see is why the state hasn't introduced or looked at those mechanisms as opposed to putting in what we see as an anti-competitive blocking mechanism by virtue of of, of, a, of a price entry threshold for biosimilars, which will make this market unviable. Sandra, uh, what percentage of the drugs um, that are issued, if you like, by the HSE every year are actually generics? The percentage is growing. So, I mean, this agreement, this particular clause, is akin to the agreement that was done in 2006, which effectively sought to block generic entry to market. And at that point, uh, volumes of generics were something like 8% of the total volume in the market. What's changed since is the 2013 uh, legislation. And what we've seen is a huge growth in generics. In fact, we see some of the common, prescri- commonly prescribed statin drugs um, for, for, for um, high cholesterol. We see generics now at 95% market share. So the legislation has enabled a huge switch to generics. The state has benefited enormously by virtue of competition being in the market. In fact, I would estimate that they've saved a quarter of a billion euros since the introduced the legislation in 2013 but rather than look into what they've you know what they've clearly been able to deliver by virtue of legislation and good practice and looking to best practice across the rest of Europe instead of that they've actually reverted to type back to the 2006 type agreement which is put in some some uh, 
price mechanism which effectively blocks people coming to market. And, and at the same point in time, no mechanism to drive uptake. So right now, biosimilars, um, and I can speak because we have three biosimilars in the market, struggle to deliver any market share here. And, and if you also have a very low price entry point and little to no mechanism to, to change prescribing habits and, and drive uptake, nobody's going to want to come to a market of this size. Yeah. And we've seen evidence of this in Austria. Exactly the same thing happened in Austria. They had a very robust biosimilar market. Um, the Austrian government took the decision to put in a very similar clause to what our, our Department of Health have now put in. And as a result of that, there's been no new entries into the biosimilar market in Austria. And, and market shares for biosimilars have effectively stymied and, and declined. But why would the government so want I, to keep I, your members out of the market? Why would they want to create a market place whereby it's not viable for uh, generics to operate here? Well, 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 I have absolutely no idea because we've been at the Oireachtas Health Committee, we've been into, the, into Deeper, we've been into the Department of Health, and we've put all of these initiatives on the table saying the best way to introduce competition is, is, is to look at mechanisms being used elsewhere. Take out some of the blocking clauses out of the current legislation and perhaps allow um, community pharmacy to, to dispense the biosimilar where a patient is new to the treatment and um, look to some mechanisms you know such as quotas which are being used in Germany and across some of the um, Italian regions L- look to a state-sponsored switch scheme in hospital which has been used in Norway and, and try and encourage biosimilars to come to market they will drive competition they will drive price down and, and you will end up with a saving in, in a market that, that remains viable and, and, and enhanced by competition so I have no idea why they've chosen this mechanism um, and, and as I say we would question that 300 million euros of those savings will actually ever be achieved by virtue of, of, of it being um, um, blocking competition and, and, and people not being willing to enter a market of this size. Yeah, Dominic has um, the Department of Health or the HSC have they responded to these claims by Tiva? No, they've they've argued that they've done uh, after extensive negotiation the best deal they can do. But what Sandra says is is correct. Biosimilars or biologics are the fastest growing sector of pharmaceuticals. They're also the most expensive. Uh, the arrival of biosimilars is a very recent development. When it first happened, everyone assumed, like generics many years ago, that prices would fall off a cliff and they'd be 40 or 50 percent less than the original drugs. That hasn't proven to be the case. Biosimilars are more difficult to produce. Uh, there's bigger barriers to entry into the market. So the the threshold the government has put in is that they will only ki- trigger the reduction in price in, in the Irish market if a biosimilar comes in, but the biosimilar effectively will have to come in at 30% below what the current drug is, is offering. Uh, that The biosimilars industry says well, that I, that's, too, that's too big correct, a hit. Just Sandra? to correct you there, because, you know, the biosimilar will have to come in even below that point. Because if you look at the way the agreement is, on entry of a biosimilar, the originator drops by 20% plus a 12.5% rebate. Now, we can talk rebate separately because I have a, a question around transparency and rebate. So we can talk about that point separately. So that means the originator on entry of a biosimilar will drop by effectively 30%. That means the biosimilar will have to come in below that point, and, and the expectation from prescribers is biosimilar should be around 20% below the originator, which effectively means the biosimilar would have to come in at 50% below the current originator price point. Mm. And, and that's just not a tenable position for these highly complex, you know, very expensive products to, 
to, to develop and to bring to market with a, a huge effort required to change prescribing habits and, and no legislation or initiative on the part of the state to drive uptake. Yeah. Dominic, there would be a perception, I think, among people that were painted a nose for drugs in Ireland compared to other markets. Does that, that actually uh, bear fruit? Uh, we the OECD figures show that we we do tend to pay more, um, and also that we have a higher drugs bill. But part of that is what how we uh, take drugs. We tend to take more branded branded drugs, which are more expensive. We tend to take more drugs than than other countries. Um, so those are all all relevant factors. The Presumably, they're prescribed. They're not just. I mean, it's not just people oh, randomly taking them. They're just it's, a cult- by it's a culture over here that that mm. there's more more uh, turning to prescription than you would have necessarily anywhere else. The the government would hope that the expansion of the basket to by these extra five countries would help to reduce the level of prices and therefore to reduce the the premium the Irish consumer is paying over and above uh, the or the Irish state is paying over and above others. Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, and and there is as Sandra says this issue about rebates because um, all these are predicated on list prices and there's there's talk about rebates and all the rest of it, but there's very little transparency about rebates. So the the basket of of prices in other countries we're comparing to are list prices, but how many uh, buyers in those markets are actually paying those prices is a moot point. How much are, if any, of this debate around uh, these negotiations is driven by the fact that uh, some of these pharma companies employ a lot of people here in Ireland? Um, I'm not too sure that it is. I mean, I think it is more driven by the fact that that we have an ageing population, we have a massive health bill that we have to try to address and and th- those I think are the driving forces. Are people aware of the scale of the by, of the pharmaceutical sector in Ireland and the employment prospects? Yes, I'm sure it's, it's there in the back of people's minds, but I don't think it's anywhere near the agenda. Right. Okay, Sandra, you're clearly not happy with this uh, with this arrangement. Is there anything your members can do to to block it or to have it overturned or to have it amended? Well, I think I think we'll have to we'll have to look at that point. I mean, you were incredibly disappointed, and not just us. There, you know, there are other stakeholders in the market um, that haven't been uh, engaged with. And, and, and to be honest with you, I thought the days of of, of um, this sort of silo thinking were, were were over with the advent of the legislation. So, you know, we will be looking to to what our members can do on this. Um, we we have been you know talking to the department in advance of this uh, agreement being being sort of being being dried on it, um, but it doesn't look like any of the points that we've made have been have been um, picked up. It, it seems to have fallen on deaf ears. Right. Are there any potential competition issues here, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think that's something we'd have to look at. Um, I mean, you, you know, clearly there's there's you know case law across Europe that we would need to look at and, and see if, if 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 there's anything that we should uh, be taking advice on. Right, Dominic, is this deal signed, sealed, and delivered, as it were? Or? Is there any prospect of amendment? Oh, I don't think it'll be amended unless it's challenged. Uh, I think as far as the government and uh, the big farmers is concerned, this is a deal that's been signed today. It is the deal that will govern drug prices over the next four years. Um, the only thing that will likely cha- change that is if there is a challenge either through the courts or through Europe, if such a thing is possible. Um, but no, I don't think there's, there's a question of it being open to further amendment before it, it's implemented. The first phase of it kicks in on the 1st of August. And the reference date for determining the prices that will kick in then is today, the 20th of July. So I don't think there's time for, for amending at this stage.
Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Laura Slattery, Dominic Coyle and Sandra Gannon for their contributions. John Casey produced the show with Rob O'Sullivan as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business Feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next week, take care. 